0: Take your Bibles and turn them with me to Jonah, chapter 4, as we uh, finish up our series, Scandalous Grace, Jonah, chapter 4. So, what makes a a great story? Many, uh, like Aristotle, believed that the purpose of a great story is to give the reader a sense of catharsis, uh, an emotional cleansing… Uh, where, where there'd be maybe a, a flawed character in the story that, that we'd identify with and have pity on, and, and, that, and that through the story and time, through adversity and setbacks and tension, the character would be able to recognize his own problem and his own character flaw and, and could kind of move through that, grow through that, overcome that. And in the process, we experience a kind of emotional release. Many, if not most stories, work that way. Now, Aristotle would not have considered Jonah to be a great story. Uh, For starters, it's hard to have pity on Jonah, isn't it? He's not a very likable guy. Uh, He is stubborn. He is cantankerous. He's not very heroic. Now, that's not too big of a problem in and of itself because there's many stories where characters have those kinds of negative traits. The problem with Jonah is that it's like he stays there. It seems like there is little growth in his life. In chapter 1, God calls the prophet Jonah to a very special mission, to go to a foreign land, to go to Assyria, to the city of Nineveh, a city full of violent and horrible people, full of Israel's enemies, in fact. And he's supposed to go there and preach to them about God's coming judgment. Uh, this, this people had gotten so wicked that they were on the verge of being utterly annihilated by God. Jonah doesn't want to do that. Jonah hates the Ninevites. He wants nothing to do with them, and so he heads off in a ship in the opposite direction trying to flee from the presence of God. Problem is, you can't run from God. God sends a terrifying storm, and instead of repenting, Jonah tells tells the sailors to toss him into the sea. That's going to save the ship uh, because Jonah would rather die than preach to the Ninevites. Sailors reluctantly toss him into the ocean. Sea becomes calm, and now Jonah is drowning, sinking to the bottom of the sea. And suddenly, he feels like dying is not the best option after all, and he prays to God for help. And God graciously sends Jonah a gigantic sea creature which swallows Jonah alive. And in chapter 2, we have a record of Jonah's beautiful prayer of thanksgiving to God and his recommitment of the, to the work that God has called him to do. Fish swims to shore, coughs Jonah up on dry land. Seems like all is well, all is going in the right direction. In fact, chapter 3, things get even better. Jonah preaches in Nineveh, and amazingly, these evil... Pagan people believe Jonah's message, and in repentance, turn away from their sin. They turn away from their violence, and they turn to God for mercy. Now, if the book had just ended with chapter 3, if the screen could have just went black with triumphant music in the background and the words, the end, coming up on the screen, that would have been wonderful. It would have been a great story, wouldn't it have? Nineveh is saved. Jonah learns his lesson, and he's in Nineveh celebrating and partying with the people that he used to hate, praising God as the credits roll up. That would have been a great story, and this would have been a much easier sermon series for me to preach, to be honest. But it doesn't end that way, because the book of Jonah is not fiction where we can craft the story however we want, and because the purpose of the book of Jonah is not to make you feel catharsis. It's not meant to relieve the tension. In fact, the book ends in a way where the tension is heightened. Because the book of Jonah isn't merely meant to be entertainment. It isn't meant to be entertainment at all. It's meant to speak a powerful word directly to you as you sit here this morning. So let's hear that word together. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. This is Jonah chapter 4, and as a matter of fact, let's, um, let's back up a verse and, and start in chapter 3, verse 10, as we're reminded of the repentance of Nineveh, and then we'll read on through the end of chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But... It displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is 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 not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting in disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. For which you did not labor, nor did you not did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than one hundred twenty thousand persons who do not know their left hand or the right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let's pray. Father, what a way to end a book tension is not relieved, it is heightened. Father, this is a word for us. And so I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would open our minds and hearts to hear what the Spirit would have to say to this church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. After Jonah's beautiful prayer in chapter 2 and his ministry in Nineveh in chapter 3, you might be surprised at Jonah's attitude in chapter 4. And it seemed like Jonah had grown in chapter 2. But if anything, it was was baby steps. And he still has some things to learn. He still has some things to deal with. Uh, You know, the, the Apostle Paul himself in the New Testament, he writes to the church in Philippi, and he tells them, I have not yet fully arrived. No believer on this side of heaven, has, has arrived spiritually. On this side of heaven, there, there, there won't be this, this moment where you just have this lesson and you're done and you never sin anymore. We all have indwelling sin to deal with and to fight with and to continue killing for the rest of our lives. That's what sanctification is about. That's what growth in Christ is. Robert Murray McShane once humbly said, The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. And so, because of that, God is always working on His servants to help us overcome the sin in our lives and make us increasingly holy. And God cares about Jonah. You may not care for him much right now, but God does. God has gotten the heart of formerly lost pagan Ninevites. He's now after the heart of His wayward prophet, and at the same time... God wants to challenge the hearts of the readers, our hearts. And there are four things our text highlights to teach us and challenge us this morning. And the first thing I'd like us to consider is the exposing purpose of God's providence, the exposing purpose of God's providence. If Jonah is going to experience real growth and change, then ultimately what is needed is a change in his heart. Often, uh, often when I'm counseling people, I will tell them that the heart is like the mission control center of a person. I didn't make that up, but many people have said that. Where the heart goes, so the person goes. As the heart goes, so the person goes. And so, Proverbs chapter 27:19, as water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the person. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7 that the that the evil that man does outwardly comes from what's happening in his heart inwardly. So, if a person is behaving ugly, like Jonah, it's because his heart is ugly. And so, for true change to happen, the first thing that needs to happen is that the ugliness of his heart, the sin that is in his heart, needs to be exposed And one way that God exposes what's in our heart is through the circumstances that God providentially brings into our lives. Our our response to those things reveals what's really in our hearts. God's sovereign providential control over everything is a major theme in Jonah. God's providence governs the weather. We've seen that. Governs nature and animals. Jonah's mission to Nineveh is under the sovereign control and providence of God. Everything is under his control. And I want you to notice a particular word that keeps showing up in this chapter in chapter 4. And if you've got a pen or a highlighter, you may want to mark this out, but look with me at verse 6. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. Verse 7 God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Look at verse 8. God appointed a scorching east wind. Now, that's the exact same word that we see at the beginning of this book in chapter 1, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. The things that are happening to Jonah here are not random. God is purposely governing the events that come about in Jonah's life. Now, often when we think about God's providential care over the lives of His people, we tend to think about that in a positive and pleasant light, kind of like kind of like what Jesus says in His Sermon on the Mount when He says, listen, don't worry about clothes and food and drink. God's got this under control. He feeds the birds. He's going to feed you. Just rest in that. That's providence. And that's a wonderful consolation, But and, and I like how I heard one preacher put it, God's providence God's purpose in orchestrating the events that happen to you often isn't for the purpose of consolation as much as as it is for illumination, for the purpose of something in your life, in your heart to be revealed so that the things that are ruining our spiritual health can be exposed, dealt with, and cut out. As the cardiologist stress test reveals physical heart problems so the circumstances and stresses of life expose spiritual heart problems. And I think that's exactly right. And I remember Paul Tripp illustrating this once. And he took a bottle of water, and he opened it up. He said, I'm going to do an illustration for you. Everybody watch. That was the illustration. And, and, and he asked the question, why did water come out of the bottle? And I don't know how you would answer that question, But my first instinct was to say, because you shook it. (laughs) And I was wrong. And he repeated the question, but he emphasized the words a little differently. And he asked, why did water come out of the bottle? Aha, very clever, Paul. That's why you've written all these books and I haven't. And of course, the answer is because water was already in the bottle. All that the shaking did was just bring out what was already there. And that water is an illustration of the sin, the anger, the pride, the bitterness, all the ugly things that are buried in our heart. The shaking of the bottle did not create the water. It brought up the water that was already there. The situations and the circumstances and the people that God places in our lives, the trials of life that shake us up, those things, those things in and of themselves do not cause us to be angry or bitter or selfish or lustful or prideful. Instead, they are often God's appointed means to reveal the anger, the pride, the sin that is already there so that it might be confronted and dealt with. As Proverbs 17 says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord is test hearts, because God's ultimate purpose, His ultimate goal, His end game for everything that He does in your life is not temporal comfort, but heart change and Christ's conformity. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, Romans 8. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son." All things that God is providentially permitting into your life is coming into your life with the purpose of making your heart like Jesus'. And this whole scene in Jonah 4 is God going after the heart of Jonah by both the things he is saying to Jonah and through the circumstances that are happening in this chapter. And through this, Jonah's heart is being exposed. And what is coming out isn't pretty. And so I want us to consider now the sinful hearts of God's prophets, the sinful heart of God's prophet. Look with me at verse 1. This is Jonah's response to the repentance of Nineveh and the mercy of God. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, your English Bibles don't entirely capture the indignation that Jonah is feeling in that moment. The Hebrew says it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. He is is seeing the good thing that God is doing, and he regards it as evil, as a disaster, as a calamity. Notice Jonah's response. It's not, Lord, I disobeyed, and I was wrong. Please forgive me. Instead, verse 2, Jonah says, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Jonah is justifying his disobedience. Yes, Lord, I know you said go to Nineveh, but here's why I didn't do it. Very often when we sin, our first instinct is not to own up to it. It's to get defensive. It's not, it's to, not, it's not to see sin as bad as it really is. We want to excuse it. We want to soften it up. It's a form of self-righteousness, and we do it all the time. Yeah, maybe I blew up in anger. I know God says don't do that, but my wife is so disrespectful I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm bitter at people in my church, and I know God says I'm supposed to love the church and be kind and tenderhearted, but they did this thing or they didn't do this thing, and so that's why I remain in this attitude. It's self justification. We make an excuse for why we disobeyed, but instead of making excuses for why we got mad or bitter or lustful or whatever, and instead of bl- blaming other people or situations or circumstances, we need to instead ask the question, why did water come out of the bottle? What's going on in my heart that needs to be dealt with? Jonah is trying to cast the blame on God and in the mind of Jonah, Jonah isn't the problem. Look at verse 3. He says, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He says, I knew it, God. I just knew it. I know you. I know how you are and I know what the scripture says about you. He's pointing the finger at God. God's the problem here. Now, Jonah was just fine with God being gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love when those sentiments were directed towards Jonah as he's sinking down to the ocean floor. But there are certain kinds of people that he believes should not have grace. There's certain people that don't deserve it. I mean, it's one thing for God to show grace to a Jewish prophet, but to these foreign Ninevite lowlifes, no way. I wonder if you're angry with God this morning. I wonder if you are sinfully angry and bitter towards somebody else. Are there people you know who you just can't wait for them to get what they deserve after what they did to you, after how they treated you, and are you eager for God to smite them? Very often, our anger and our bitterness towards God and other people is connected to a sense of superior self-righteousness where it is good for us to get grace, but we don't want others to see it. We don't want others to get it. And what we're learning about Jonah is that his theology isn't connected to his heart. Jonah does know some good theology. He knows lots of good theology. In chapter 2, his prayer mouths all kinds of great doctrines. For example, he recognizes God's sovereignty. He recognizes God's wrath, God's omnipresence. He even declares great reform soteriology when he declares at the end of chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. He knows good theology. He knows the Bible. His prayer in chapter 2 is heavily influenced by the Psalms. We also see his Bible knowledge coming out here in chapter 4. He declares in verse 3 that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's picking up from an ancient creed first uttered by God himself in the book of Exodus where Moses asks God to show him the glory of God. And in Exodus 34, God does. And the climax of the revelation of the glory of God is not bright light or fire or earthquakes. It's instead in this proclamation in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's the glory of God. This God who does not clear the guilty, who is a God of justice, nevertheless somehow clears the guilty and forgives sin. This grace and mercy of the God of justice is one of the supreme manifestations of the glory of God. Now, Jonah cites this creed, this truth about God. But what's the problem? The problem is that the theology he knows isn't connected to his heart. See, a lot of people know a lot of theology. A lot of people can sign off on an orthodox statement of faith. They, they can have scriptures memorized, and they can talk about the deepest doctrines of the faith, and yet their hearts are not shaped by their theology. They may even love theology, but they may not love the God of theology. This is Jonah. Jonah. He is standing here angry at God. He is reciting that ancient creed about God's grace and patience and love, the Scripture that highlights the glory of God. And he's not saying it with joy. He's spitting it out like a curse. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what's really going on in Jonah is beginning to be revealed in how he uses his words. It wasn't just that Jonah didn't love the Ninevites. It was also that Jonah did not love the glory of God. He had no zeal, no interest, no passion, no desire for God's glory, the Exodus 34 kind of glory. He had no desire for that glory to be made manifest in Nineveh. He loved his own plans and preferences above God's glory. He has great theology but he lacks love, whether love for God or whether love for people. Those things are always connected. He cares more about what he wants. He does not seek to treasure or enjoy God's glory above all things. And the Scriptures warn us that you and I and Harbin's church, we can fall into that same trap. The Apostle John, writing to the church in Ephesus, a church that has tremendous theology and doctrinal soundness. He writes to them a message directly from the Lord Jesus himself. And Jesus says to this church in Revelation chapter 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. You see, they had good doctrine. They were able to examine these false teachers And judge them in light of Scripture. Jesus says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. It is not enough to have good theology, and to get on social media and call out and expose false teachers as people who are from our theological tribe often love to do. Folks, our church has great potential to be an Ephesus kind of church. Harbin's is known for its great teaching and for sound doctrine and good theology, and we are the kind of church that must be on guard against the temptation to hide behind that And ignore our calling to love just because we have correct theology on paper. By the way, theology is never meant to be divorced from practice. And we can sit around and we can make fun of brothers and sisters at churches whom we deem to have weak theology but maybe are strong in social ministries and feeding the poor or building orphanages or whatever. We can chide them for neglecting sound theology and good doctrine as they serve people. And yet we, ourselves, all the while can be weak in the areas of showing love, generosity, and compassion, and grace, and hospitality, and serving and welcoming other believers and unbelievers. Let me ask you this. What would you rather have? Good theology and no love in your heart, or love in your heart with bad theology? Friends, If you think there's an option there, you've already blown the question. There is no option. Both are wrong. Both require repentance before God. But I fear that sometimes people in our theological tribe are secretly content with lovelessness as long as their theology on paper is spot on. But make no mistake. If we go the way of Ephesus and remain there, Jesus will not put up with that. He will shut Harbin's down. He will remove our lampstand, and our statement of faith will not help us. And so, in Jonah's anger, a cold, loveless heart is exposed, which is an apt picture of the final results of one who will persistently put self at the center and not God and others. The end result is anger, joylessness, disappointment, and no lasting satisfaction. We were made to live off of God and His glory. And when he is not in the center, we will end up resenting God and others. Now, the self-absorption in Jonah's life is exposed all the more when we get to the instructive parable of God's plant. The instructive parable of God's plant. Look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. All right, so Jonah is so eager to see God's judgment come down upon the city that he constructs a kind of a box seat for himself to watch the entertainments. He's thinking that maybe God's going to do something like what he did in Genesis when he rained down fire from heaven and consumed Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jonah's not sad about that thought. He's eager for it to happen. He's eager, for, he's eager to watch this. And I think Jonah here is just counting off the days. Remember his original message in Nineveh in chapter 3? He said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And so he's he's just sitting there, maybe with a little piece of parchment, and he's scratching the days off of the calendar. Day 34, day 35, day 36, day 30. Come on, God, do your stuff. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. To save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad, exceedingly glad because of the plants. Here's, jo- here's God's prov- providential care of Jonah, supernaturally providing this plant to save him from his discomfort. Guess what that is? That's grace. It's also gonna be part of a lesson. And how does Jonah feel about this plant? He's glad. He is glad about God's grace. In fact, it says he is exceedingly glad. Does that sound familiar? The grammar there is identical to what we see at the beginning of the chapter describing Jonah's anger, where it says Jonah was displeased exceedingly. But now there's a 180. He is enjoying the comfort of God's grace in his life. But remember, friends, the providence of God is not merely for consolation, but for illumination. And there's some illuminating about to be done. The things that make you really happy are one of the keys to assessing the spiritual condition of your heart. Friends, have you noticed that this is the first time in the whole book that Jonah is described as happy? Jonah has just come off of the greatest spiritual revival in the history of the world. An entire city of evil cruel, barbaric, violent, fish-worshipping pagans have suddenly come to repentance. They have turned from their evil ways. They are now worshiping the one true God, and Jonah is not exceedingly glad over that. But now he's happy. And what is he happy about? A plant. A plant that gives him personal comfort and pleasure. Do you understand How tragically profound and pathetic that is. Do you understand how tragically profound and pathetic it is when we care more about our personal comforts and pleasures than we do about the lost? How often, how often do we get more passionate and joyful about our leisure time, our entertainments, our favorite hobbies, our jobs and careers, our sports, our health, our comfy houses, our, our video games, more than we do people who do not know God, who are under God's judgment, who are, who are in desperate need of the message of the hope of the gospel of the God of grace. We get more excited about those other things than giving these kinds of people the message of hope that they need. We are more excited about Avengers Infinity War than we are about the prospect of reaching the lost with the gospel of Christ. May God help us, and may God help your pastor who stands at the front of the line in this church as the chief of sinners. There is something profoundly broken and twisted in our hearts that God needs to fix and untwist and unbend and make right because we are Jonah too. We are Jonah too. God is pressing into Jonah's heart here, much like he will often press into our hearts, much like he may be pressing into some of your hearts this morning because the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plants so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. This is probably a Sirocco wind, feared and dreaded by folks in the Near East, unbearable and, and, uh, and destructive. And because God has removed the shelter of His grace from Jonah, the prophet now is feeling the full force of this heat, and physically Jonah feels himself ebbing away. And in his spiritual stress test, the condition of his heart is being further exposed. Verse 8, Jonah asked that he might die, and said, "'It is better for me to die than to live.'" But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The things that make you happy expose what's in your heart, and so do the things that make you angry. Sometimes God will remove things from us, even if the removal is painful, to reveal to us that the thing removed has become way too important to us, even more important than God himself. And, and folks, that's actually another manifestation of God's grace to reveal that to us through His providential arrangement of the circumstances of our lives. Nineveh has repented. The plant that I wanted is gone. Life isn't worth living. And here, Jonah's self-absorption is exposed to the point where it is revealed that he would rather die than go on without getting what he wants. If we lose the things we treasure to the point that we feel like life is not worth living, we have become exposed as idolaters. We really have. Because if we say life is not living, worth living, if I don't get the things that I want, if we say that, we have just spit on the value of God. We really have when you think about it. When I had all those other things that I wanted, life was good. But when those things are stripped away and all I have with God, well, that's not good enough. Do you see that? I wonder if you see that sometimes happening in your own life, in your own heart, in regards to the things that are valuable to you. I wonder what are those things that are so valuable to you that if they were taken away, you would get angry and feel like life isn't worth living. That the worth of God and having God in your life, well, that, that's, that's not good enough. God plus something, that, that's, that's good. That's what I need. Or forget about God. If I just have this, I'll be okay. You see how Jonah's main problem here, his main problem is not with the Ninevites. It's really not. His main problem is not racism, although I think he is a racist. That's not his main problem. His main problem is with God. His main problem is his disdain for God and his lack of love for God's glory, where he has gotten to the point where he spits out the Exodus 34 creed that's supposed to point to the glory of God. He spits it out like a curse. His main problem is with God. God and His glory are not enough. Give me a plant and some roasted Ninevites, and that'll be enough. What about you? I know you wouldn't say, give me a plant and dead Ninevites. (laughs) i have to have a conversation if that's what's on your list. But but what might you fill the blanks with? What are the things that are threatening to become more valuable than God in your life? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What do you treasure? What's captured your heart? And sometimes even good things, things that are essentially good, can become a bad thing when they become the ultimate thing and displace God from the center. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, and in his joy that man goes and sells all that he has to acquire the field so he can get the treasure. Do you really believe that? What about your life says that you believe that? Or what about your life contradicts that little parable? God here is laying bare the heart of Jonah. But the pathway to change is not simply knowing what is wrong with our hearts, but better knowing and appreciating God's heart and knowing what is in God's heart, which leads to my final point, which is the immeasurable compassion of God's heart. Guys, the Lord has been utterly brilliant in his dealings with Jonah, from the plant, to the worm, to the withering of the plant, to Jonah's discomfort, to the question, are you angry about the plant, bringing Jonah to admit that he actually is? God is really setting Jonah up brilliantly here, setting him up for the punchline, which brings us to God's final question. It's the coup de grace. It's the checkmate move. It's the whole point. Verse 10. Verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah has become so pathetically self-absorbed, it is stunning. He doesn't care about the animals, creatures that can suffer and feel pain. And he doesn't care about God's highest order in creation, human beings. The only creatures in the cosmos that bear and reflect the beautiful image of God. Instead, Jonah pities the plants. And let's be honest, the only reason he cares for the plant is because of what the plant did for him personally. The comfort and pleasure it provided him. Jonah has no use for anything that does not immediately give him what he wants. And that self-centeredness has caused him to dehumanize everyone else around him. That's what sinful self-absorption and self-centeredness does. It dehumanizes other people in your life. He almost lets those sailors in chapter 1 be destroyed. You know, he could have easily repented on the spot in the boat, but he let them go through this futile exercise of of trying to save the ship. And we see in chapter 3 that he couldn't care less about thousands of men, women, and children in Nineveh. All he cares about is himself, and I hope that's becoming obvious to you by now. Jonah's whole life is about self. He's forgotten his identity. He's forgotten his calling. He's forgotten his very reason for existing. Jonah and his fellow Israelites, the Jews, they were chosen by God by grace. In fact, Abraham the father of the Jewish nation, he was saved by grace out of a pagan idol-worshiping family. And when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt later on, they themselves had abandoned God and had begun to worship idols. And the book of Exodus tells us that nevertheless, the Lord comes by grace. He saves them. He saves Israel from bondage. And he brings them out of slavery. And he establishes the people in Palestine, and he places them geographically right at the crossroads of the nations, surrounded by all of these pagan peoples. That's not a coincidence. And they're put there surrounded by the nations, not because they were morally or racially superior to the Gentiles, but so that Israel, the recipients of God's amazing, scandalous grace... Might be a blessing to the surrounding nations and mediate God's grace and blessing to the Gentiles as God's priestly representatives. God put it this way to Israel, right after He rescued them from Egypt, uh, right after He rescued them out of slavery, He says this to them in Exodus chapter 19 You yourselves, Israel, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to yourself. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So not for the purpose of self-indulgence. That's not why they're in existence. They were blessed in order to be a blessing. In fact, that was God's very promise way back in the beginning to Father Abraham, when God told him that through your offspring... The whole world will be blessed. And yet most of Israel, like Jonah, have become self-centered and loveless towards God and loveless towards their Gentile neighbors. And yet in spite of the unfaithfulness of Israel, nevertheless, in the fullness of time, God was faithful to His promise. And God brings forth from Israel a prophet greater than Jonah who will bring blessing to the world. Unlike Jonah, Jesus actually came into the world in eager obedience to God the Father. Unlike Jonah, who sat outside of Nineveh angry and weeping because God's judgment would not come upon them, Jesus stood outside of Jerusalem weeping, his heart torn into pieces for these rebels, these sinners who despised him, because they would not repent, because they would not come to him. Unlike Jonah who sought death because he loved himself and did not love others and did not love the glory of God, Jesus loved others and loved God's glory so much that he went to the cross uh, to die. And in dying, he solved the Exodus 34 dilemma. Namely, how can God be glorified as a God who forgives sin but by no means clear the guilty? Almost seems like a contradiction there. How, How can he do that at the same time? And, of course, Jesus does it through bearing the guilt of sinners himself as their substitute. And as their substitute, he suffers the judgment of God that sinners should be judged with. And through the full payment of sin and through his resurrection, which confirms his payment was sufficient, all who run to God, who trust in him as a refuge for salvation, whether whether that be pagan Ninevites in Assyria who look forward to final deliverance, or to materialistic suburbanites in Atlanta who look backwards to what God has done in Christ. All who look to Him and repent will be saved. But Jonah wants no part of that grand and glorious plan. Jonah wants to be blessed, but he does not want to be a blessing to others. Jonah forgot that he was saved by scandalous grace And he does not want to be an agent of that grace to others. And his self-absorption causes him to shrink his life down to, as Paul Tripp puts it, a claustrophobic little kingdom of one. And what a miserable and lonely little kingdom it is when it is all about you. That's what self-centeredness does. That's the pathetic life of a man who has put himself at the center and not God. So, the end the screen goes black, and the credits roll. You satisfied? That good flick? Some people don't like how the book of Jonah ends the way that it does. It is not wrapped up in a neat, tidy little bow. It doesn't provide catharsis. It doesn't relieve the tension. It heightens it. It even ends with an unanswered question, and we wonder, well, what happened next? Well, Where, where's Jonah too? I don't see that book in there. Did, did he repent? Did he answer God's question? Why didn't the author finish the story? The reason why the author doesn't finish the story or answer the question is because he's not interested in how Jonah answered the question. The point of the book, friends, is how do you answer the question? How do you respond? Your heart has been exposed. Your self-absorption revealed. Your lack of love for God and your lack of love for others has been confronted. And now, what will you do? You see, brothers and sisters, God did not save you. He did not bless you so you could be self-indulgent and self-focused. He saved you to be a blessing. And so the Apostle Peter writes... You are a chosen race. Okay, this is New Testament here. He's not. This is not Old Testament Israel. He's writing this to the church, to you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So you can just sit around and enjoy and absorb the, the graces of God? No, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The implication there is, so what are you going to do with it? Friends, you and I are no more deserving of God's grace than anyone else. We were in darkness, this Scripture says. Indeed, the Bible says elsewhere that we actually were darkness, the seed of every sin known to man is in your heart. We don't deserve grace. We deserve judgment along with the rest of the world. But this scripture here says that God called you out of that darkness for a purpose. He has made you a part of God's people and has given you mercy so that you can be an agent of God's grace and mercy to others. You see, Old Testament Israel is no longer the vehicle by which the blessings of God are mediated to the nations. It's now you. You are God's people. You, church, are the kingdom of priests. Jonah is dead and gone. The baton has been passed to you that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. Should not God pity Atlanta, that great city? Should not God pity Tokyo? Tokyo? And Cairo and Mexico City and Baghdad and Moscow, should God not pity your lost friends, the neighbors on your streets, your classmates? Should not you? Let's pray.